one has to take chances in order to make one's life um, extraordinary, <laughs> I guess. And with that comes some risk. So if it did work out, great. If it didn't work out, then, hey, it's not the end of the world. You're still kind of young and you can reinvent yourself. Fearing for its survival, Skynet sends a cyborg assassin back in time to 1984 to kill the mother of the yet-to-be-born John Connor, the leader of the resistance. The T-800's single objective is to terminate his target, Sarah Connor. He is cold, methodical, and relentless, singular in his pursuit. Though he is stabbed, shot, and burned, he is undeterred. He has no regard for his own safety or who he has to kill in order to achieve his objective. Okay, that might be a little bit dramatic. As far as I know, my next guest has never killed anyone off screen, but he is as determined and persistent as the Terminator. Welcome to the show. I am Chris Edwards, the CEO and co-founder of a company called The Third Floor Incorporated. Uh, The Third Floor is uh, named after our time at the third floor of the Skywalker Ranch House, where we worked live every day with George Lucas. And it was just a band of brothers and sisters where we got a chance to work on Star Wars Episode Three, War of the Worlds for Steven Spielberg, and a couple of other movies. And so what we do is we're the directors, digital artisans behind the scenes coming up with designs, not only for shots, uh, but entire sequences. And in, in the case of Star Wars and many of the other projects that we work on, entire movies as a sort of a digital animated blueprint known as previs. Okay, so there are a lot of industry people who are probably listening too. And for me, when I think of previs, and I've seen previs done before, and you guys do it in a whole different way. Mm-hmm. And maybe the industry is catching up to you. I don't know what it, where it is today, but when we first were introduced, I, I saw previs as grayscale models that moved kind of like frozen statues across the scene. Now, mm-hmm. we would get the idea, and that was kind of the level people had expected. Yeah. But you guys did something way more than that. Talk about your yeah. approach. Well, we've always felt that the design in Previs can, uh, should be as detailed as it possibly can to give the director and designers, their entire crew, the, the best preview of what they're about to do live on set or in post-production. And so it was a bit of a struggle early on to get people to realize that you really should put some effort on the front end and raise the quality of the, the character performances, the, the, the detail to which you noodled the compositions and figured out your shot design. Um, and over time, though, over the last, well, it's been more than a decade now, 13 years out on our own as our own separate company, uh, it's very clear that people are embracing this fully. So now we have the ability to combine everyone's input Basically, the director, uh, production designer, DP, um, visual effects supervisor, and everyone else, and all of their ideas into a single place where we can we can try out new things. It's sort of like the happy accidents before you even get on set, right? It's bringing that kind of spontaneity back to the early design process and and having the confidence that what you're going to do on set is is exactly the right way to go. 
Let me see if I can get some of the nuts and bolts questions out of the way so that there's some context in case you're not an industry person, you don't know what the heck Chris and I are talking about, <laughs> okay? So typically a director, especially like a visual effects film, and it doesn't have to be for visual effects, but they need tools to conceptualize or make real their thoughts. And in a traditional sense, you would do a storyboard and they vary to differing uh, degrees in terms of their quality, but it's really to kind of block out the shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, a previs in its rawest form, I think, is that, but moving over time, right? Yes. So you're, you're considering the lensing. So yeah. what kind of lens are we going to use? Do you also think about the rigging of the camera and how it's going to move through a scene, or do you not deal with that? Yeah, I mean, we start as conceptual and artistic as possible because um, we don't want to limit the vision for some of these movies where... You know, maybe it's a shot that couldn't have been done before, and we need to figure out later on how to make that happen. But certainly as time goes on and we get closer to the director's desired artistic vision, we layer on a sort of a technical um, level of expertise where we begin to think about the types of camera cranes, the, the, the physical camera limitations, and lots of other factors, including how they're going to piece this together in visual effects. Because I mean, if you've noticed on like Jungle Book and um, Beauty and the Beast, there's a, a lot of a major uh, compositing that goes into these movies. These are highly processed, highly designed and advanced movies. And um, and all of that needs to flow all the way back to previs where we, we really help everyone figure out what elements are needed and how that's all going to come together in the future. How do you get started? What What do you need for you and your team to get going? Well, um, I'm very proud to say that usually we need very little. Um, we can literally go off of just an idea in someone's mind, and then we are the creative team that also brainstorms new solutions and comes up with things that maybe even the director and designers wouldn't have thought of on their own. Um, that's our job, not to be just a, um, you know, a cog in the machine, a part of an assembly line process. It's not that way. It's, it's really you know, like your company, Chris, it's a design a resource. Um, we're here to to speak up and to be supportive and additive to the vision. Can you give me an example of something that is the most extreme version of that, where it's the loosest of a description, and yeah. to take somebody through the process? Well, you know, the one that just pops into my mind is the movie Gravity with Alfonso Cuarón. So this is an amazing director, visionary director, who had. Um, you know, a fairly loose script because it was a highly visual movie. It needed to be figured out um, as we felt through all the emotional impact of each of the scenes as they were building up towards the crescendo of the ending of the movie. And so uh, what Alfonso was able to do is work with some of our our lead previs artists to begin with something as simple as a description, a discussion, and a couple of action figures that we were using along with a mocked-up space shuttle to just visualize very quickly what, um, what we might want to produce. And, uh, and then we can quickly take those discussions and bring them into the computer and start to make that work with the real-world scale of the space shuttle, of the, the moving elements, and, and figuring out a hypnotic way to t- tether together shots that could be maybe 12 minutes or more long. And so, so this is a, a description, a discussion, a very collaborative thing, and then action figures and kind of framing things with your hands, kind of looking at stuff. Yeah. And then do you, are you left alone or do you, are you blocking out the shots with him in, in the room? Well, 
it it is different with every single creator. There's a lot of directors that like to be very hands-on and they covet that early time frame when they do actually have time to be with us every day and sit in the middle of the bullpen of of artists that we usually gather together Skywalker Ranch style to to be able to um, be like short order chefs riff off on ideas that come up on the fly it's kind of akin to what we do what we used to do um, or I used to do at at uh, Disney feature animation. See, I my first job out of school was Disney, and and it was inspired by the original um, storyboarding process or story sketches, where they in the story room they would um, put all the best ideas up on a single board, and if one artist, even though they were almost finished with the entire boarding of an entire sequence, if one artist had a new idea that was better in the middle of that sequence then their changes would be accepted and it would ripple through the entire sequence so it left a big impression on me that we all need to be very much a part of this free-flowing creative process before it gets too expensive before it gets too complex and we go down too many primrose paths so to answer your question a lot of directors love that spontaneity of working with the team live as but however as the team goes as the project goes on the filmmakers get uh, uh, wrapped up in a lot of other tasks. I mean, they're the bottleneck at some point in that they need to talk to the actors. They need to go scout those locations. They got to talk to all the other artisans that, that will make the final imagery. And so there's a trust that has been built early on where we can continue to build sequences and then just show them our designs and ideas for validation and feedback um, every so often, as often as we can get their time, which sometimes means just running up to them with a laptop or Cinesync in, uh, basically doing a video conference with them um, over the internet. So in this kind of early sketch phase, uh, there are no uh, sacred cows, no precious ideas. You're willing to throw anything and everything out, and that comes from your background at Disney, what you learn from, from those guys, right? Absolutely. And in this stage, are the characters, like say if you're you're doing the Avengers or something, and there's a bunch of characters. Yeah. At this phase, are they just blocked out in terms of how they exist in a space? Or are you already doing character animation at this point with the director in the room? Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's logical to build up your scene. I see it like a clay sculpture, right? You start with larger forms, larger layouts, and even do sort of a technical plan for how you're going to um, pull off the entire scene like you're staging a bank robbery from up above like oh, we're going to start here we're going to go this way and then that's where the big battle's going to ensue and then we're going to have a little you know emotional moment over here which will look great against that background but then you add layers of details you have confidence in that first layer of what we call blocking then we go in and we add more animation but only the animation that we need to really further that particular area of exploration so, you know, it is a strategic approach. We're getting really good at being able to come up with a variety of techniques that add up to, you know, an entire visualization of an entire movie, which will be a multimedia approach. There will be certain scenes that will be fully animated where you could just watch them like a Pixar movie. In other cases, it will be more of a, a technical breakdown of how they're going to just set up the shot and then maybe work with the actors to make those performances come out. So you do what's necessary and not... It's not always the same. 
Yes, uh, it's that's the expertise of Previs. It's not a one size fits all for every filmmaker for every film kind of uh, discipline, and that's what makes it also very exciting. Honestly, is to be able to customize our approach for whatever we're about to do, and almost every project gives us those new challenges. Um, you know, like for example, on Game of Thrones. Believe it or not, for the last four seasons, we've been working on Game of Thrones, and. It's, it was a challenge because we had to move very quickly from sequence to sequence. I mean, there's every Game of Thrones episode is an hour or more, and there's a lot of them. <laughs> and we have a very small team out there working just maybe a few days ahead of when they're going to be shooting that sequence. Oh, wow. And in television, of course, you don't have all the time that maybe a $100 million movie would have to reshoot things one at a time. So it's been um, it's been quite a journey to be able to find the right model for each of these different types of productions. Very interesting. So in Game of Thrones in particular, how big is the team? Are you working uh, on site somewhere? Like you yeah. set up a room and you guys get to work? Well, you know, with many productions, what we'll do is we'll build up a whole library of assets. Like we'll build the world and the characters and the dragons and the White Walkers and all of these things back at our home base studio um, either in LA or in London and then we can take those tools like a custom sort of um, you know Lego set if you will and we can act more nimbly when we're out in the field so we bring our computers with us and whether we're shooting on location like in uh, Game of Thrones we're in Northern Ireland most of the time but there's other away locations and we, we we do love that mode where we can go and just travel around wherever the filmmaker needs us. And that allows us to be more responsive to the ever-changing dynamic atmosphere within a film, a live film set. So you have this library, and then yeah. um, I don't want to do the, the technical stuff too much, but are you using mm -hmm. any specific tools to do all this work, the modeling, the animation, and the, the previous yeah, work? Yeah, I mean, that's the beauty of, of our industry in general is that it's using all the same tools of that you would expect to have to know for visual effects and for many uh, designers outside of the visual effects industry. So it's Maya, Motion Builder, the Adobe suite of tools, um, you know, various modeling packages in and around Maya too, um, Mudbox, Paintbrush, that sort of thing, but mostly Maya. And we're increasingly using game engines actually as a way to really pump up the quality of what we can produce in real time. We've always been very clear to distinguish our discipline from that of any sort of final imagery. There are many, many, many amazing visual effects studios that are all our best friends that are a better fit for for finishing those final shots and doing the nuances to bring those characters emotionally to life. But um, but we're tooled to be uh, quite a bit more nimble and our whole pipeline is about that real-time exploration. So that's why we love um, real-time graphics and anything, all the new video cards, all the new virtual reality uh, gear, it's all leading towards this ability for us to do more detailed scenes um, faster and with, uh, with a, a greater amount of latitude for what we can create and conjure on the fly. I, th I think you're working towards that idea where you can kind of do it in real time as if you're working with real actors blocking out the shots, right? Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's good you mentioned that because that's like my, my new campaign, I guess you could call it new, but we've been at it for... <laughs> 
well, let's see, five, six years, we've been working on some of the largest virtual productions. And by virtual production, I mean it's like taking the previs out to the set and in live form, creating all this imagery all spontaneously. So basically imagine a film like Avatar, right? Where most of the scenes were created not through uh, previs in advance, but were actually a live acted exploration on a virtual production stage with actors playing their parts and the ability for the essentially the previs guys now being virtual production guys um, being short order chefs moving things around changing the environment triggering animations that need to happen on the fly and all that's recorded and explored with a live what's called virtual camera it's literally you know being able to pick up a device and peer into the computer and into the the virtual world that is playing out right in front of you. I think this is the beginning of a major, major shift in sort of all creative process, where instead of hovering over a uh, the shoulder of a of a computer artist who's on a computer and telling them, no, 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 you know, move it over to the left or move it over to the right. No, that's not what I want. The filmmakers themselves can grab the reins, go out there, immerse themselves virtually and make some amazing decisions on the fly, much like they would do if there were no visual effects and no um, complex problems on a live action set. So to the naked eye, uh, that would look like a person wearing probably one of those mocap suits and a couple like props that are wrapped in blue or whatever. And then through whatever device, a virtual camera, a headset or something, mm -hmm. the director, cinematographer can very precisely look into the world and see something entirely different. Yeah, you know, this is something, it's not science fiction, we're doing this today. We have been for a, a long time, starting with <clears throat> Robert Zemeckis' movies and a lot of work that we've done over the years with, um, of course, Cameron and some of these major Marvel shows, for example. It's all about being able to take certain scenes and exploring them live together. And that begins with something we call pre-capture, which is uh, before, usually before the live actors or the final actors come out on stage. It's just our ability to literally just create previs in real time on the fly and shoot it as a dress rehearsal for the main event. And then there's the main virtual production event, which is when, okay, all the lead cast are there and people are very concerned about the, I guess, the fidelity of the final capture so that the facial performance is perfect and all of this stuff. So that's sort of the second phase escalation of this two-step process. Wow, this is super fascinating. And, you <laughs> you know, normally I, I'm taking notes yeah. and I can't take, a, take notes here because there's too many things I want to hit you up on. I'm trying to prioritize yeah. what to ask you first and, and how. Uh, why don't we gonna rewind the tape a little bit and go back to who you are, where you grew up, and, and how you even got into the space in the first place. Because you're the CEO, but you yeah. mentioned Disney now. There's this artist side to you as well. I work really hard to explain to people that, you know, I just kind of fell into the role of the CEO. I never went to business school. I never necessarily even wanted to run my own company. It wasn't my plan. My plan was just to hopefully work with great filmmakers and help them do something extraordinary that was would go beyond whatever they could do um, without my help. <clears throat> and, you know, growing up as a, a 
kid on the East Coast with really no connections to the film industry, this seemed pretty daunting. Um, well, how had, old are you when you knew you wanted to do this? Um, Be in the creative space, that is. Probably uh, junior high school. And was there a trigger point that something, a seminal moment where you looked at something, saw something, somebody told you something that then that became an idea in your head? Yeah. Um, good question. <clears throat> Actually, you know, my grandparents are big fans of classic cinema. So grandparents on my mother's side took me to a place called the Virginia Film Festival. And it was fantastic because I, I had a one day or a couple day seminar with a guy named Roger Ebert, who you'll recognize as the, you know, the famous film critic. And it was just a very hard to get into, just a very exclusive group that was looking through Citizen Kane, you know, sort of famous, you know, cinematography example. Um, and uh, seeing that on Laserdisc with a laser pointer. And they would go literally excruciatingly slow, frame by frame, through all these compositions. Wow. And, right? And I was completely blown away because I'm, I guarantee you I was like probably half the age of the oldest other oldest person in the room but I was soaking it up for days on end where he was for the first time pointing out that cinematographers have so much control over the mood and your impression as a viewer even though they're just arranging elements in space and creating these interesting compositions so it was a huge epiphany for me and I said wow that's amazing this goes way deeper than I could have ever imagined and I, I sort of married that up with my obsession with um, all of the visual effects, or at the time called special effects, the artisans that got together with filmmakers, like at Industrial Light Magic was like the premium example of this at the time, perhaps the, almost the only example, um, where for the original Star Wars movies and E.T. and, uh, you know, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, that sort of um, type of movie, that they were getting together you know classic artisans that could build models with people who were electricians with people who were just visionary filmmakers and they all worked together to make something that the world had never seen before and if you actually look back at some of those films there isn't actually that many visual effects in them but when you're clever in peppering those those extraordinary effects throughout a film you suspend your disbelief and you go oh well the whole world must be that way um, like in in Star Wars, they'll cut away to in the original Star Wars, they'll cut away to a creature and they'll just show it for like one little shot, and then never again. Like he had such great self control, whereas a lot other filmmakers would have said, "Oh man, I spent a lot on that puppet. I'm gonna put him in every single scene and make it feel like a t television show." But because of that discipline, it felt really big. Anyways, so I combined these two obsessions into my drive to do something with my life in this area. And I didn't know of any other way to do this other than to just go to traditional film school because that's what my, you know, Francis Ford Coppola, George Lucas, all these other folks did. Before we get there, I, I got to stay in this moment here for, for a beat longer. You're a 15-year-old kid? Yeah. Okay. And your grandparents are really into cinema. Lucky you. Yeah. Really lucky you, right? Because um, maybe they wanted to spend time with their grandson. Maybe they wanted to share their love with you. But you got to sit in what, I guess, I don't know how else to describe it, but a master class in cinematography, studying Citizen Kane. Yeah. Well, that was the... One of the greats. That was the beginning. And what was amazing about it is that, you know, my, my mom is, is 
carried on the tradition of being a film buff and and not just film but you know uh, plays and ballet and all kinds of stuff right so we would go and see culture I think it was her way of being um, counterpoint to my dad's awesome influence in um, engineering so that's the other side of my brain he's he's an aerospace engineer aka as he likes to remind me a rocket scientist <laughs> like literally he is literally a rocket scientist <laughs> and I'm very proud of, of both my parents um, and thankful that they gave me both of the sides of my brain and the reason why I wanted to mention that is because it really is the two pieces that need to come together for the best pre-visualization in the world. It's art and science. Art and science together, because I don't think I would be happy if it was um, just an artistic career for me and my way my brain is wired. I, I think um, I love the problem-solving aspect of it. And to your point earlier, that's what we do. We start with this, um, this art, and then we get more and more technical. And, and, then the, and then once it goes on screen, all the technical stuff goes away. Hopefully no one even sees the man behind the curtain, and uh, the beautiful art shines through. Was it When you said that you were watching on Laserdisc, so that dates both of us because we both know what we're yeah. talking about right there. <laughs> yeah. And the, he was pointing with a laser pointer and pointing out frames. And was that Ebert himself doing that or was that somebody yeah. else? Yeah, we were sitting, wow. I mean, I think it was about maybe 20 people at most in the audience in a small old school movie theater in this very small town. And uh, yeah, it's a couple day session where we would just, you know, get through the first 30 minutes and go, okay, that's three hours. Um, you know, see you back here tomorrow. <laughs> so, um, but I think what I wanted to say to you guys is that you have to take your dream seriously. And even if it doesn't even exist as a career, one needs to go after it pretty hardcore, right? So I said, well, what can I do tangibly to get me in this right direction? Well, I can start with film school. Film school at least gives me a base of understanding of uh, expanding on what I had learned on my own. but. Um, you know, for how to visualize things in general. Um, schools will never give you quite the same level of technical expertise, perhaps, that you will learn in the real world because it's all moving so quickly. So I decided during summers I would go out and masochistically do an internship every single summer starting on the East Coast and working my way out to Hollywood. So, you, you know, you have to work for free or work for a minimum wage or whatever is required um, I remember I was out at Cinesite, which was a company, um, still is a company in Europe, but they had an office out in L.A. It was like the culmination of all of my efforts in my career um, for my summer internships. And uh, we were working on a movie called Space Jam, which is the, with the Looney Tunes uh, running around with Michael Jordan. Anyways, I, I volunteered just to come out uh, and work on the night shift as a render wrangler slash, you know, animator whenever there was something to do. And as, as low on the totem pole that was, it gave me so much access to high-end computers that were, you know, millions of dollars um, surrounded by people that were willing to, to teach me something that I couldn't learn in school. So I basically combined my hobby in computer graphics with my career in visual arts and film at a time when, after I graduated, it was kind of a new skill set. I mean, this is like pre-Pixar days. <laughs> this is pre, um, you know, having anything other than high-end uh, silicon graphics or SGIs, if anyone out there remembers what that is. I do. 
<laughs> oh, yeah, I'm sure you do. <laughs> now, you mentioned film school. Which film school did you go to? So I went to the one of the lesser-known schools in film. It's called RIT, or Rochester Institute of Technology, but it's actually an amazing school. It's It was, at the time, um, it's the home of Kodak, right, um, meaning Rochester, New York is where Eastman Kodak was. And uh, so they had an amazing photography program uh, mixed with a um, kind of a computer vision and different, um, you know, computer uh, backgrounds so that I, their film school was sort of sitting in the middle of those two areas trying to find its identity. And uh, anyways, just a really good place to go and uh, freeze my ass off and <laughs> do, uh, do a lot of uh, films that got a lot of stuff out of my system so that I could uh, understand who I was and become a bigger leader, I think, um, uh, that I, I used very effectively um, moving forward into my actual career. Now, was, was this a traditional film education? Yeah, because, it was very hands-on. You're, you're was, talking about CG stuff, and so where does that even come into okay, play? So I didn't learn any CG stuff at school. There was a graduate-level program for some computer graphics, but it wasn't nearly as sophisticated as what I was, I was able to do as my own hobby or, um, you know, in these internships that I mentioned. So it really became choose my own adventure. And there was there was that moment where I had to choose what my final project was going to be. We had already made many films, you know, documentaries uh, on film and video and uh, animated shorts and whatnot, but but it was that critical moment where, okay, this is going to be your calling card coming out of college. What are you going to do, Chris? And I said, I want to do a 3D animated short that uh, I will do with all my own equipment my way. And uh, there was a little bit of uh, resistance from the studio at the time because, or from the college at the time because they were saying, no, you know, you you have to do something live action. But I fought pretty hard and talked passionately about what I wanted to do, and they let me. And thank God they let me because that was the really the only thing I had to show tangibly, other than my internship work, to eventually get me into Disney feature animation, which was my first job out of school. Heyo, John Roth here from the future. I'm here to tell you guys about the pro membership. A lot of you have been asking about how you can engage with us and where you can go to meet like-minded individuals. Well, I'm here to tell you how. For $75 a month with the Pro Membership, you can join Chris Doe's collective of creative entrepreneurs, which includes everyone from designers to strategists to writers and more from all over the world. Also included is over 40 hours of exclusive videos on a variety of topics, from the business of design to project management, and access to two pro calls a month where you can have your questions answered by Chris live. All that and more in your pro membership for just $75 a month. Not afraid of commitment? Sign up for a year and save $150. The pro membership, exclusively in the online store. Go to thefuture.com shop for more. I want to know, what if the administrator said no to your idea of creating this CG film? What if they said no? What would you have done? Um... I guess I would have done both. I would have still wow. done my own film on the side, and I would have done something to satisfy the requirements of school, okay. which was not nearly as critical of the results as would be the real world 
because so you would have fulfilled the academic requirement, but you knew from a professional requirement you needed to do this for yourself. Yeah, I mean, it's really a sliding doors moment, right? I mean, had I made a live action movie, I would have been maybe, you know, able to uh, do some more production assistant work, work up Grip Electric, someday become a cinematographer's assistant, and it's a long, hard road. It is. Mm. So the risky choice was actually the safe choice, and the safe choice was the risky choice in his case. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Here's my second what if. Thank you for keeping that really contained. That was great, by the way. <laughs> um, what if you were wrong? Because, you know, this is what, the way the world was moving. Your program, your classmates, everybody's doing it that way. And you're the guy who's like, I'm going to get a PC and I'm going to teach myself Studio Max. Yeah. And I'm going to do this thing. We know it worked out. Yeah. So we're not worried. But yeah. what well, if it didn't work? One has to take chances in order to make one's life um, extraordinary. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. And with that comes some risk. So if it did work out, great. If it didn't work out, then, hey, it's not the end of the world. You're still kind of young and you can reinvent yourself. So, you know, to all you out there, just don't don't be afraid to try. I mean, be safe with your life, but um, don't be afraid to try something that's a little bolder and see how it works out, you know, but make it happen in a short enough time frame so that you have the ability to uh, regroup if necessary. Wow. Okay. There's so much for me to process here. So <laughs> you're, you bought your own computer? Yeah. So I had what a... What are you um, running here? I can't... Well, this was a, 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 an awesome... Um, I think it was like... A, what was it? 486 at first. And then it was... Uh, I don't know. I got some new... Like Pentium, an IBM PC, so, right? Yeah. Just yeah. like a... Yeah. It would be... It's like a calculator by today's standards. Right. Your iPhone is more powerful. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Using, believe it or not, 3D Studio Max, the very first version, which is very buggy, um, and it was the student edition, so I had certain lim- limitations. Um, one of the early users of that. But yeah, I mean, alone, basically, in my my room in college, I just cranked that thing out, and I uh, it was enough to get me a really awesome interview at Disney Future Animation. And and this is what I want to get to is that uh, as soon as I entered the workforce, I realized that I didn't know anything really about about how um, the in, how sophisticated the industry was. And but I was able to learn on the fly. And I was very, very fortunate to be involved in a project called uh, Disney's Dinosaur. So I don't know if you remember. Is that a TV it. show? It's actually a feature film. Oh, okay. It was pretty I, I darn um, pioneering at the time. <clears throat> it's probably on the bottom of the shelf at uh, Blockbuster Video or wherever videos are sold these days. <laughs> but um, but it was amazing. This whole opening sequence, including live action backgrounds, basically flying over the real Jurassic Park, aka Hawaii, and. Um, and then comping in all these dinosaurs, which were very sophisticated. I mean, keep in mind, this was the production where they had the animators from Nightmare Before Christmas and James and the Giant Peach, the stop motion guys, coming together with paleontologists that were working with Disney and a new studio they built from scratch for this that was over in Burbank. And it was like Disney's new play to do something very, very sophisticated in 3D computer graphics for the very first time. And they had spent about, I think, over a year and a half 
pulling this team together. They had people doing tests and making paintings and working on everything except for the only problem was the story was not perfect at that moment and they didn't really have a roadmap for exactly what all those shots were going to look like. So this is, keep in mind, this is before the word pre-visualization or previs existed. So they just had to hire a bunch of capable generalists like I guess myself, barely getting in under the wire at a time when there was this immense pressure to define the film. And they, at the time, they called it something called 3D workbook. Okay, this term only exists at Disney because workbook is the, the step between storyboards and final and sort of a layout pass. So it means it's, you know, how a storyboard can be kind of sketchy and it's just an idea on a paper. It may not be exactly the right proportions. Um, and then the layout in a Disney animated sense is the exact line drawing of all the little details that go into that background composition and where that character is likely to be animated on top of that composition. But that's a little, that's a little too detailed um, to get to right away. So in the middle step is called workbook, which adds shading and gets a little more serious to commit to exactly what that will feel like. So that became the the origin story for Previs, at least as far as I'm concerned. And we built that department up from, I was uh, employee number three, and we went to a whopping six people that basically <laughs> had to work together against all odds with all these other folks waiting for us to finish uh, to plan every shot in that movie and then tell that live action crew where to go in what area of the world, like literally with a map, and to say, okay, you're gonna go on your Hawaiian vacation and you're going to travel in a Jeep out to this ridge top. You're gonna to put the camera there, you're gonna point it in this direction and you're gonna do this camera move that we will give you this file for um, and that's the background. So it's it was a precursor to what we do today in terms of the sophistication of what wow. we can um, design. There, there might be a lot of people who are like, what the heck are these guys talking about? So I'm going to try to pull like the, the, the human part of all of what we're saying here. Mm. What strikes me is really incredible, and I relate to this myself, but there's a lot of people in our audience who don't have the same self-awareness uh, and support of parents or even that background of film and cinema and that love. You, you seem to really know where you wanted to go, how you wanted to do it, and even when your teachers or the faculty challenge you on it, you made a compelling case to let them do what you need to do. For a lot of people, that's a really scary idea. Like, how do I stand up to the authority when they're the ones who are supposed to know what's right for me? Yeah. Can you talk about, like, that a little bit? Help them understand what they need to do. Yeah, I mean, I think that whenever one is faced with challenges towards your goal, you have to think very clearly about what inspires you what drives you and where your passion is coming from and either you will be successful in convincing your professors your the people who are trying to help you or you're not and if you're not then you maybe it's not the right fit for you I mean this is your life your career <laughs> um, not everything's gonna fit the mold uh, colleges are excellent at training people for careers that they understand. If you're a career 
doesn't fit a mold, it might need to be something where you have to put a couple pieces together or manufacture a new piece that didn't exist. You know, the thing I wanted to point out is that there are a lot of great people at our company that did graduate from college and became very successful in our company because they were trained this specifically to do the skills of previs and other related disciplines. But there are a lot of folks that just didn't even go to college. They had a drive to do something. They worked on their own projects. They studied on their own, and they and they had as good a skill, if not better, than some of the folks that were spoon-fedded in college. I'm not saying don't go to college. I think college is an awesome time to really work on yourself. Um, and I, I, I think I will give my daughter, who's nine years old, the same advice, that really it's a time for you to become a leader, to sample the opinions of other like-minded folks that have come to that university for the right re- for the same reasons or similar reasons, and for you to be open to changing who you are based on all those influences. But at the end of the day, you know it's it's your ship and your you're charting your path in this world, and don't let anyone get you down. And, it, and there will be squalls. <laughs> And uh, you know, I don't know. In in our career, it's been a roller coaster of emotion, going from just the challenge of trying to get through college, and then going, well, how am I going to get that first job? And and then that worked out. And then, oh, how how can I find a way to work with some of these elite filmmakers? And and then that and that and that happens. And then I had to reset my expectations and go, okay. Well, now I want to branch out on our own, which is a very scary step because, you know, just working for another company is, even if that company is fantastic, is, is the easier route. But I've always tried to set my, my heart on um, just trying to take the road less traveled, if you will, right? It, did, you, did you have doubt, though? I mean, people ask me that all the time, like, how are you so determined that this is the right course? Because... It was so new and so different. You're going really against the grain or the tide of well, the Well, I think things. human nature is is to stick with whatever has come before us and then slowly evolve it into something that um, improves that process. But if you can look at it objectively and you see uh, an opportunity for a, a major shift that actually just makes common sense, it's not... It's something that you, at least in my mind, it convinced me that we're doing things completely wrong in many cases in live action cinematography and story pre-production. You know, I was influenced by what happened in animation because in animation you can try an iteration again and again and again until it's exactly what you want to hand over to the animators. But what if you could apply that same type of iterative um, redo button, redo, retry, add to the sculpture, keep on improving it? That philosophy and that that ability applied to live action cinematography, and then later on, now you know we apply it to video games, we apply it to VR experiences, we apply it to making and designing theme park attractions. It. I had an epiphany early on that this is universal. I believed in it so strongly, even though there were naysayers about 
oh, how the budget would change. Well, I, I don't have budget for that. It seems like we're doing the movie twice or three times. Clearly, you know, there was a lot of hurdles. But I try to put the blinders on. I try to not let competitors or naysayers get me down. And I just say, what can I do to improve myself or get myself or our, our entity um, one step closer to the goal? And I think as a leader of a corporation or of a team, you need to continually reset what that goal is, right? And you might change it over time. But for me, my goal has not changed very much. From the very beginning, I just knew there was a better way and a universal way to visualize everything. And, um, and I saw that this was inevitable with Moore's Law and the sort of the way in which computers are going to enable us to, to just freely create, which you see very clearly on you know, some of the, um, you know, like in, in virtual reality, Tilt Brush and some of these other applications that allow you to just step into a virtual world and paint and sketch something. I mean, this is something that was just sort of a, a little demonstration early on and then later on bought by Google. Um, is being used as a professional tool where where um, costume designers are are like sketching out what their rough designs are going to be. This is just because someone finally made just a consumer level application that's really e iPhone easy to to interface with. Um, so we just do the much more sophisticated, customized version of that with um, a giant team working together. I guess the last thing I wanted to say is that it's really about working together in parallel as a team. And that's one of the hardest things is that if you're a single artist, you can do a pure 100% you job. You know, it, it is your vision. But there's a certain limit to what you can do, even if you're the best artist on the planet. You just will have not enough time to influence the world most of the time. <laughs> Some people do. But I embrace this, this idea of the team, the team dynamic and working together as a, like a multi-user workforce. So we can, I don't care how awesome that director is, that director can be, their vision can be magnified by the power of times 10, times 20, times whatever, how many other artists that we get involved in this. And it usually is, the results are greater than the sum of the parts, if you will. You know, every time I ask you one question, you give me this much answer. Yeah. And then I have 55 questions to follow up on the first question. <laughs> well, so, thanks for uh, sticking with it, guys, <laughs> out there. Woo. All right. You know, I'm trying to figure this thing out. And I, I think I, I suffer from the same thing, is that what you do seems so natural to you, it seems kind of crazy anybody would do it any differently. But as we're building up our audience, we hear from people who don't have that same conviction or confidence or belief in self mm -hmm. uh, that I'm trying to help understand what it is that you're doing so that I have a better time explaining to people what yeah. I'm doing. There's this quality in leadership that I'm seeing and I, 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 I'm hearing it in what you're saying right now is that I think leaders like you and, and, and everybody that's kind of doing something different, visionaries, whether it's Steve Jobs or just boil it down to like, like a painter or a sculptor, yeah. I think they're able to see something in the future where normal people can't see. Mm. And it's so clear to them. It doesn't matter if they're 99 no's. Mm. They only focus on the yes. What gave you that confidence? I mean, 
Is well, this how you always see the world when you're like four years old, or did did you develop this over time? No, I definitely developed it over time. I mean, I wasn't the most outgoing person in high school or you know grade school. Um, I definitely felt very creative, and I I knew inside me that there was something that I had to offer the world. I didn't know what quite what that was, but I, I was um, excited to discover that and to you know, make an impact. I mean, it didn't have to, I didn't have to be famous or anything. I just, I just wanted to feel very proud of what I had done. Um, so for me, I think it was validating to see the results of my attitude and how it would impact others, you know? So if I could do something on a student project as a, just a group of buddies getting together to do a little something for a film festival and we were so proud at the collective results and then you know you get a lot of validation and um, and respect for having donated your time to that and they, they they see you as an invaluable member of that team that really boosted my confidence like you know thousands of times in my career where it wasn't all zero to 60 all at once. It's, it's like, you know, take one step at a time. And definitely when you do take the next step into the next big arena, it, there's going to be times where you feel like, oh my God, what have I done? This is really scary. And I'm going to really have to bunker down and figure it out. For example, the big one for me was... Okay, so we were at Skywalker Ranch. We were finishing up the projects we worked on. We knew that we could probably all get a job somewhere else because we had a little resume going and people didn't even really know what we had done. And once we were, <clears throat> once we revealed that, uh, it would be, uh, I guess, a good, a good career um, jump for us to go to another company doing similar things. But then I feared that everyone else would, um, all of my, my friends, the the handful of people that were at the Skywalker Ranch, that they would go to all these other amazing jobs and I never really see them again except for every so often. So we took the road less traveled again and we said, nope, we're going to move from San Francisco area down to Los Angeles, kicking and screaming, and set up the third floor of the company. And I, again, had to be the revolutionary and say, guys, even though we're not super confident that this is absolutely going to work out we believe that what we offer is valuable and if you guys don't believe it enough to put your own money against it i'm going to fund it to make it cost neutral for everyone else other than the dedication of the time that you're putting into it which is very valuable too so anyways that's the idea is that sometimes you do have to make that leap of faith and i did that and then you're like oh great, now we need to get our first job. <laughs> and you have a certain ticking time frame to do that or else, yeah, you know, you, everyone starts losing confidence. They have practical concerns and they need to get back with trying to make their lives successful. All right, now let's get forward to the future here a little bit. So Ooh, the future. Yeah, I mean, this one really big decision, you're like in your early 20s making this decision that has a gigantic impact on the rest of your life. Yeah. You decide to make this uh, CG film. Yeah. Then your first job is over at Disney, and then you get to Skywalker Ranch. Mm -hmm. And it's incredible, this one 
super important kind of risky, I put in air quotes, decision that you make alters the path of your life. And yeah. now you have this incredibly like successful the plot of company, a film, huh? right? <laughs> and, and, and for you, amazingly, it, it, like you can't even script it better that it just falls in place. Yeah. If you don't do that CG film, the guys that are working on the dinosaur film, you're not yeah. even relevant to them, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like they, they only brought me on, I think, because maybe I was cheap at the time. <laughs> but, um, but also they just saw me as capable of just moving stuff around um, and uh, doing stuff quickly in the computer. So that, because at the time, the, the discipline wasn't where it is now, which is this, you know, you better choose your previous supervisor carefully because they could be your co-pilot in this whole thing, you know, mm. just like how you would choose a cinematographer or a production designer. So when you when you decided and with your friends to leave and start the third floor, mm-hmm. there was some hesitation, and you said, you know what, I'll bankroll this, yeah, if necessary, I will bankroll it just so that we could go do this thing together, keep the band together, if you will, yeah. And you seem more determined than everybody else because you're willing to put your money all of it out, right? Well, we were all determined. I was just a little bit more experienced with the um, with the L.A. market since I had been down here for Disney. So I was like, you know, I feel comfortable I see. Um, recommending that. I'm going to do a few things up front to make it easier on you guys. Um, many of them lived out of my house. Uh, I still get mail from them, uh, <laughs> for them. And, uh, you know, that was the first leap of faith moment. But we've had other aftershocks of that since we had to grow as a company. So, you know, going from six guys in a room, the original founders. Working out of your house? No. Um, we, we were living, some of us were living out of my house just to keep costs low. And then um, I got a job at Sony, um, Sony Imageworks, working on and, uh, Sony Pictures animation shows like Open Season and Surf's Up to help fund the day-to-day activities of third floor. Oh, wait, wait. Oh, my God. Okay, hold on. Yeah. So that's that's what I was going to ask you. Like, where did you get the money from? Because you're all kind of working in the same, like, okay. Well, so yeah. you were going to go get a job just to fund the company? Yeah. So here's the thing is that, you know, uh, working in a job straight out of school at Disney, even though it's very prestigious, it doesn't pay a huge amount. It's you're still, like, entry level at a great place. Um even though I worked there for five years, uh, I actually, I probably had to take a step down just for the honor of working with uh, George Lucas, which is like, you know, something uh, technically he could probably charge money for people to come work for him. (laughs) I don't know if that's legal, but it was kind of the vibe of like, well, you should be lucky to be here. So, and we were lucky to be here. So how do how can you argue with that? So none of us, there's like no um, money here. This, had any cash right. really, and uh, even though we did nothing else but work at Skywalker Ranch, pretty much, and have a couple of barbecues and whatnot. But, um, anyways, uh, so I needed to have another job, and since I had had the Disney career before that, unlike some of some of the other co-founders who were literally straight out of school into the Skywalker Ranch team. Um, I had the ability to go out and have the day job. But it was funny enough, it was like, you know, my coworkers at Sony, some of them were lamenting on a particular day. Oh, man, that was a tough day. I can't wait for the weekend. And I'm like, yeah, so I'm about half time and I'm going to go to my other job, which is even more intense, where I have real pressure right. to, you know, uh, previous supervise something. There was no safety net. 
with the other with starting your own company where these guys had a, a job to keep coming back to every single day exactly yeah so, so you're burning the midnight oil on this thing that's what one has to do when yeah. you're trying to break out of the pack um and yet after a while it became impractical and we just decided oh i should probably quit quit my job and do this full time and that was a leap of faith and then later on just going from six artists to you know, more like two or three teams worth of artists into the 20s and 30s was a different type of company. I remember we had to realize, oh, oh my God, in addition to the six founders, we need someone who's another manager to help us out with answering phones and coordinating activities and helping with our client outreach. And that's just the beginning because um, we're now about 300 artists strong. Oh, my God. 300 employees strong. Woo. We're all around the world. We have a large London office, which is hovering around 100 employees. And wow. uh, we're just about to um, branch out into Asia and uh, basically have the entire world um, reach. So wherever global domination. <laughs> yeah, that's another way of saying it. Um <laughs> But basically, you know, filmmakers, there's awesome filmmakers all around the world that want to do extraordinary things. And we have a common process that can help them, whether they be independent little filmmakers or the biggest blockbuster, uh, you know, uh, visionaries. We can uh, we can help make their world not only more artistic and more um, doable, but also more efficient and maybe even save some money in the process. Wow. It's a win win. Okay, are you okay on time? Can I have another 10 minutes with you? Sure, yeah, okay, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So I have a bunch of business questions. Some of them may or may yeah. not, you may not want to answer. Just say pass and it's totally fine, okay? okay? How did you get sales in the early days? And then how do you do it today? Okay, so to get sales, <laughs> one needs to start with your relationships with people you know. And cold calling doesn't usually work very well. Um, until you have a bit of a reputation or at least something to show. So our first job ever was just a recommendation from one of the concept artists and art directors, I think it's Eric Tiemens, um, who was up at the Skywalker Ranch. Because, of course, there was the previous team, but there's also all of these traditional artists there that are building models and making paintings and designing all the stuff that we would um, riff off our previous ideas off of. Anyways, uh, so he said, hey, I know this guy. He's a designer of theme parks, and it's a it's a pitch that needs to come together fairly quickly for Hong Kong-based uh, themed attraction, theme park. And I don't know if you guys want to do it, but I, I told him you guys were affordable and we could, you know, it would work out great. And, and so we pursued that. It became our first project for something called Ocean Park, in Hong Kong. So what was the budget for that project? Uh, I'm afraid to say, I don't know. It was probably, you know, less than $100,000, uh, okay. um, which if we worked on it for many, many, many months um, and rendered it to the T, it was um, it was pretty low budget for today's standards. Um, what would it cost today with your team of 300? Um, well, you know, our projects tend to land somewhere between, you know, uh, handfuls of hundreds of thousands of dollars to... Um, in in many cases, over a million or more, um, depending on what the project needs. And it's a little bit of a different beast to work on a theme park project versus a film project. Um, but yeah, it's not uncommon to spend 
two, three, or more millions of dollars on an entire Marvel level campaign. Um, it seems like a lot, I'm sure, to some of you, but it's when you add it all up times the the literal amount of creativity and the footage that we need to do. It's 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 literally time and materials. It's it's the individual artist salaries times a certain amount of time. But being being that I'm in the industry myself, it is a lot of work to block out these effects laden films and to kind of figure out what you're going to do. But I also look at it if you spend two or three million dollars doing previs. That might have saved you ten dollar, ten million dollars worth of mistakes. Well, that's the thing. Right? It's is expensive. That, you know, some many of the the large budget studio films are between you know north of a hundred million dollars, sometimes north of two hundred million dollars in the end. And I know there's lots of other costs that go into it, but if for basically one or sometimes less than one percent of the budget, uh, previs can come in really help shape the directors and producers and studios ideas give them the confidence to scale up and spend the rest of the money and they're not it's not just confidence they're spending it super wisely they're spending it with the strategic outsourcing approach where this particular effect goes to that studio that is the perfect sweet spot for that skill set but these other things that are a little easier to do can go to the up and coming little studio that is just dying to do these things that are not as sophisticated and they can do an excellent job. So, you know, unless you have the blueprint, you it's very hard to parse it out, um, both for onset logistics and what camera cranes and equipment to buy and rent and how, how much time do you need that to be rented for, plus the post-production aspects that can be even more exponentially expensive if you mismanage your uh, production. Right. Okay, so... I, when I think of previous work, I, I think of you guys. It seems synonymous to me. So I, I think you dominate the market. Do you mm. still have to do sales and marketing, or just work comes to you now? Well, we technically we work on about seventy-five percent of Hollywood blockbuster films, and that's just wow. in the film world. Yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah, we're very proud of um, our clients and partners, and so really great to see their success. And they they've been very honorable and uh, appreciative of our efforts too. So we have a lot of repeat customers. Um, you know, the reason why we have repeat customers is because we have one, an artist-driven company. We appreciate our our own teams. We give them normal working hours. We pay for any hours of overtime that are required, but that's very rare. We're kind of like, it's striving to be like the Pixar or the, the, the Google of, of um, visualization. And um, I think we've hit the mark most of the time because that means that our artists are not only satisfied in their lives and f recharging their creative batteries, but they are also making a, a bigger impression on all of the creative and technical people that they're working for on all of these jobs. So then they become sort of invaluable to their people's, the, our clients, um, you know, working process and we get asked back again and again so it's a self-fulfilling prophecy but yes there's still a huge amount of capability that is untapped or of of market that's untapped for previs because i just think a lot of mainstream creators don't really see it as or don't know the full power of what it can do uh, perhaps they look at the examples from 
Avatar and Gravity and Mad Max and some of these massive films, and they go, oh, that must be, you know, the rich kid's game. It's not true. I mean, we're like the, the minority share of the budget really helping optimize those guys. And my argument to, to everyone out there thinking about doing a little bit of previs, even if it's just on your own student film, it's like you guys are the ones that need it the most because you have to be all the more surgical about how to use your limited resources. Perfect. So just to boil it down, you don't have to do any more sales and marketing. They just, you're repeat. Oh, no, we do. I mean, we're kind of the soft sell company. Yeah. Uh, that's the reason why many of you may not may have heard about us by just like watching it in the credits or something. But there's not like this. You big get press blatant, too. You get press, we get right? Press and all of that stuff. We don't pay for any of that. Right. Like we don't put up ads. Seriously, we're just there trying to do a good job, and our we're letting our reputation speak for itself. This is probably. I mean, we could go. I think a lot further forward if we had this massive. Um, you know, marketing campaign, but we haven't needed to, thank God. Um, we like the idea of just building the team with the best artists that we can find and nurture up through the ranks. And to date, everyone that we found that is uh, amazing uh, at what they do, we've been able to keep them busy very consistently for many, many years and growing um, in a sort of a steady exponential way. I think that's a natural thing for me to jump into the whole, what are the challenges you're facing today? You started out with six co-founders, or is it five? It's uh, six, including myself. Okay, so five, co-founders. five additional co-founders, uh, where you're hustling, working a full-time job, and then doing the what we commonly refer to as the side hustle, trying to make this thing work. Guys are living in your house, making it just, <laughs> you know, trying to figure it out, to now yeah. having over 300 people and being in every major film market. Yeah, yeah. What are the challenges that you see now as a CEO? Well, you know, it's it's another one of those moments, just like going back to school where I like, yeah, I could have just done that live action film. I could have just gone with the path that seems to have been laid out before me. But right now it's like I can either just continue doing, making third floor the best service business it can be and adding on and reinforcing that or I could do something even further beyond that. And so I, I don't have anything too concrete that I want to report right now, but basically it has a lot to do with making our process global and being able to work with teams, perhaps in video game engines, um, simultaneously live all around the world so that any director can jump into the holodeck and have access to such a magnitude of workforce and libraries of assets that they can just create anything. And then that process, if refined, can be efficient and accessible to everyone all around the world. That's the, the next ballpark goal that we are um, striving towards every day. And we're really close. Wow. So it sounds to me like there is an issue of scale and I don't know if you would use these words, but it's almost like democratizing this process so that any director anywhere who should be doing this kind of thing can afford it. And it's done at a high fidelity. Yeah, that's the idea is to find that sweet spot. Mm -hmm. And then get, to your point, getting the word out that this is even available to people. Um, you know, the world is increasingly 
full of visual stimulation. And you're going to see that even more with VR and then leading to AR and all of these other things where our world will be inundated with uh, Ready Player One-like um, data all around, Minority Report-like data. And I feel like this is a rich environment for storytellers to also dive in. And why not use the legacy of what we've done together in traditional forms of storytelling to inform what that future of entertainment will be. Okay, one final kind of tough business question for you. Oh, tough one. You. Oh, well, it might not be tough <laughs> for you. Well, we, we constantly are reading about people in the VFX world yep. going bankrupt. Because in the VFX world, you bid mm. on a project and you got to just do it because you have a lot of mouths to feed. And then the director in the studio get to keep making changes and changes and changes. And before you know it, you're sideways. So you got to take on another job to pay for the bills for the job you were supposed to do, but you're un underwater yeah. on. Yeah. Do you face a similar thing and how do you avoid it if you are? Well, very early on, we knew of some of the early trials and tribulations of visual effects. It was a flat bid business where basically a final amount was determined probably very early on before the even the creative vision is determined. And without previs, without any definition to it, it becomes this ever-growing wish list of, man, I wish it could be better, I wish it could be better. And because it is the final imagery that goes on screen, there's immense pressure, to your point, to deliver that. So if there's any hiccup in the schedule, like with Life of Pi and all this stuff, it literally can put you out of business. So we said, Previs is different. Previs is early, early days work. It is the DNA that goes into everything that feeds into production and post-production. So we need to be perhaps willing to just do it as time and materials, which is not the way to get rich quick. <laughs> it's a slow and steady wins the race where no one's getting windfall profits on anything. It's just I know if my artists are working, they're, they're pulling in what we need to do to keep the lights on. And that humble approach has served us well because you can't negotiate any further below that because we just will take someone else's job. And because we've held the line on that, we're still growing and alive in the business. Um, nobody's driving around with fancy sports cars or anything like that, but we have built a base of operations that is... Um, really, really solid that we can now build on to either create our own content or help other people create their own content in, in a way that exceeds the current view of what the uh, entertainment publishing system is today. So what I'm hearing is that you're, you're not doing these fixed fee bids where it's all you can eat for one price. It's eat more, pay more, eat less, pay less. Yes, and that eat less, pay less is important because that in lies the honesty that we have with our clients. We literally like, they'll say, well, you know, you know, just for simplicity, we, you know, we owe you, we owe you a hundred dollars. And then we go, no, no, we only used 80 of that. And they're like, what do you mean? Everyone else charges us for whatever it is that we originally signed up for. And we right. say, no, 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 we're being honest. We actually were able to be more efficient and we bank those hours and, you know, either parlay that into the next sequence or if we're done, you know, just don't bother paying us for that. In, in the editorial world, that was referred to as cost plus bid. 
Yes. Whatever it costs plus my markup. Yes. And that's what you do, right? It's exactly that. Yeah. But we're now getting into territory where the only reason why we would get involved more deeply with a particular production beyond that cost plus model is if we were able to negotiate for some sort of equity stake in the project. And because there's this thing called pitch viz, right? The ability to go and visualize a teaser trailer for a movie before it exists, which has become kind of a thing in Hollywood to be able to allow people to vet the idea before it's even financed. We're thinking very seriously about raising finances to be able to put that against creators' visions who may have an awesome idea, perhaps a great script. Their reputation precedes them, but they need couple hundred thousand dollars to to make a whiz bang trailer um you know it used to be that you'd go out and befriend your visual effects company buddies to do that and then they would do a freebie test to show that's what the alien can look like but i think that because visual effects people have worked so hard we've proven as an industry that you can make anything you want you know it's no one's going to doubt that that's possible it's more about what is the story and how is this film going to be constructed that's big and unknown? You could take it up to 11 anytime you wish. So pitch viz is a term I'm not <clears throat> familiar with, but I totally get the concept as you say it. Yeah. What people uh, who aren't in the industry might not understand is there's a whole film market that, yeah. that you have to kind of sell your idea to a financier or a studio, and whoever's mm-hmm. doing it needs tools to be able to do that. Is uh, I think one of them is called Show West or something. Is that yeah, you know, there's or AFM, the, yeah. there's the, the Cannes Film Festival mm-hmm. in France, and there's lots of other um, film markets around the world whereby a lot of folks go out there to either sell content that they've already produced or pre-sell an idea, script, a package of actors and directors to folks that will want to inevitably distribute that product and it's really the lifeblood of everything outside of the studio system honestly the major Hollywood studio system and uh, and yet very few of those people use uh, sophisticated previs or pitch viz to sell their ideas there you know there's a lot of cottage industry around creating like a rock star looking poster that makes people look into that poster and go, wow, man, if that was at the multiplex, I'm probably sure that people would go to see that. But I think that's kind of old school model. So I'm sitting there at the precipice of like the way I felt at Disney, where I'm like, I'm surrounded by some cool concept that will shake up the world if it only went into the larger pond, right? And I feel like here we are working for all these amazing creators in the highest end of television and film and gaming and whatnot and what if we were able to go mainstream and you know not devalue ourselves but just make sure everyone is is aware that even a uh, a portion of this effort can really help them get to the next level and it's not about profit for me it's about the ability to help others and win a friend and have them go thank you for helping to make my career or make my dream come true, let's do it again sometime. I'm going to tell my friends about that. What's amazing to me is that what you do uh, is to advance the story. I have an idea, it's abstract, you make it concrete. You help to potentially identify problems, but you're also bringing artistry into it. And 
then when you're talking about this pitch viz thing, you're also helping whoever's the the person pushing the idea forward to give them more sophisticated tools to tell their story. Yep. At the end of the day, this is really just about storytelling, and now mm-hmm. there's a whole other market for you to apply it to. That's the thing is it starts from that earliest stage of conception through the pitch viz phase into previs into something we call tech viz and then on to onset visualization or virtual production like I was talking about on and then into something we call post viz right. which is your early visual effects pass that where we can help visual effects by putting in elements that we understand better in previs and that becomes like the the test screening footage that we use before that final visual effects is is available so long story short it's a continuum of development it's a really, really fun place to engage. There's a lot of folks that are reinventing themselves who have spent a lifetime building a career in visual effects or in high animation circles and saying, you know what, I'm having a lot more fun in previs because I have a huge impact on an entire sequence that would never have existed without my input as opposed to the detail around this subtle nuance in that one particular shot or that performance. Um, so it's for me, it's inspiring to see those individual stories of satisfaction of what we're doing. I think it's just the beginning, and I'm excited to see where it's going to go. Fabulous. Well, Chris, I want to thank you. You've been very generous with your time. I'm going to wish you luck, but I know you don't need it in terms of like where you go in the next five years because everyone it seems needs like luck <laughs> every five years you and i we touch base and something cool happens and you'll probably be at like ten thousand employees who knows what's going on but oh God, thank I you so not. much <laughs> <laughs> thank you i'm chris edwards and you're listening to the future the future is hosted by me chris doe the show is edited by Stuart schuster big thanks to adam sanborn who composed our theme song to subscribe to the Future Podcast, check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and now SoundCloud. Make sure you rate and review our episodes. Don't miss out on upcoming events, live streams, workshops, and announcements by going to thefuture.com and sign up for the newsletter link at the bottom. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Future Is Here. Thanks for listening. That's it for this episode. See you in the future. <laughs>